so, the journey through Scripture. We're in a little three-chapter book today, and it's about a 12-minute read, uh, depending on how quickly you would read this book, uh, depending on what speed you might have it on if you're listening to it on uh, some audible platform. Um, it's about a 12-minute read, and it explores profound ideas. I mean, it is powerfully packed with ideas about human sin and how human sin wreaks havoc and destruction on our world. It's also about how God desires to show mercy and compassion to those who will confess their sin. And it's about a God who one day will defeat evil in our world, but also defeat evil inside of us. And it's about a God who will bring his healing presence to make all things new. So you paused right now and you asked, well, then what does this book have to do with me? Does this little book of Joel have anything to do with me? Well, keep this in mind as a way of context. Joel calls the people of God to lament and return to the Lord during a time of natural disaster. This book has a lot to say to you and to me if we will listen. Well, we'll do a quick narrative summary. It is hopefully going to be quick after all. It's only a three-chapter book. So here we are with a, a narrative summary. I'll, I'll list some major themes, uh, the image, the primary image that's being used by the prophet Joel, the structure of Joel, uh, and then we'll get into a sample passage of, of Joel. First of all, major themes. Uh, if you've ever read the book of Joel or you're just now trying to read it, even as I just encourage you to read it for about 12 minutes, uh, the major, one of the major themes you're going to see is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And this is a key theme in the prophets. And just kind of maybe a quick definition as you go through this day of the Lord in the prophets is it's a time when the presence of the Lord is going to bring judgment and or deliverance and blessing. And it's going to be based on the circumstance. So every time you hear day of the Lord, it doesn't always mean doom, gloom, judgment. Day of the Lord can also mean blessing, favor, um, depending on the circumstances. And so in the prophets, Joel being one of them, these past events are actually pointers to a future time future time when God will again defeat evil among his people, but also among the nations, and bring salvation to the world. Second theme is repentance. If the whole, and by the way, the whole community of God's people. Yes, God's word is speaking to you individually as a person, but it's also about the community of God's people. And so around repentance, if the whole community would cry out to the Lord, and look to him, not merely with external actions, but in sincerity and commitment, Joel is saying, if we will return to the Lord that way, then judgment may be prevented. God may actually turn from his judgment coming upon these people. That's the second theme. The third large theme in the book of Joel is the Lord in their midst. Now, the Lord will actually end up turning from judgment to blessing to express his covenant-keeping character. That's what's going to happen. We're going to see that happen in the book of Joel. 
and imaged for us. And there's going to be God's promise to dwell in their midst. God is actually going to show up and make his home with them. I am going to be in your midst. He's, uh, that's the prominent, one of the prominent themes here in Joel, both also in the New Testament as well as for us now and even the future. Uh, God's presence would be in our midst. The fourth major theme is an outpouring of God's spirit. This, quote, day of the Lord has a role of both judgment and salvation. When there on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given. Okay, image of Joel. We talked about how these prophets have some major image poetically to help us see something that they're trying to communicate to us. Last week was the book of Hosea. Wow, what an image. The image of a prostitute. Go back and read that story or uh, tune in to that sermon um, there on our, our, our website. But uh, today's image of Joel is that of locusts. Okay, don't think cute little locusts in some little stuffed, you know, like in your bed that you're going to cuddle with if you bought it some store. I don't even know that there is any type of thing like that, but some little stuffed animal that's somehow a locust. No, this is swarming locusts. Swarming locusts that are going to devastate Israel. Um, chapter 1 is talking about this swarm uh, has, is coming and it's devastated Israel. It's basically a natural disaster for Israel, destroying wine, destroying grain, everything in its pathway. It's coming and annihilating all of it. And you ask, well, what's the big point of that? Well, uh, famine would be one big point of that. The second major point that Joel says is that it's threatening the people's ability to bring offerings into the temple, to worship God. That's why this is such a big deal. That's what the locusts are doing. It's taking away their ability to meet with God and worship God. God ought to grieve them. Think day of the Lord that came against Egypt. When the eighth plague, that too is around locusts, there in Exodus chapter 10, of course the Israelites are thinking, well, that's coming on Egypt. Certainly that's not going to come against us. And yet it did. This time the locusts are being sent against Israel. And you think, whew, I'm glad the locusts are gone. Well, there's a plea for the people of God to repent and return to the Lord. And then another swarm of locusts come. Oh, no. Chapter 2, the locust, it describes it as they are like God's armies, like soldiers destroying everything in its path. It mentions that the sun is darkened, the earth quakes, and the day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure it? Now to them, original context, that was a future day of the Lord. An imminent disaster was upon them of Babylon and Assyria coming to sack. That's what was happening for them. And so there is hope in this book of God confronting and defeating the invader, defeating the locust, for which the locust poetically represents for us. Joseph, sorry, Joel sees these ravaging locusts as imagery representing arrogant and violent nations of his own day, Assyria and Babylon, the war machine, the empire that ravaged and oppressed the people. 
And a couple weeks ago, we were looking at uh, the book of Daniel. And in Daniel's vision, remember, he's seeing these beasts. And again, Daniel, our writer, is wanting us to understand they represent something. Those beasts and even those horns, you know, boasted about, is to represent powers of the day, empires of the day. Of course, in Daniel's vision, he saw one like a son of man coming that would defeat the beasts. So there's hope here in the book of Joel. So structure, if you were to try to summarize the structure, I guess the way I'm trying to summarize the structure of this little three-chapter, again, it's a 12-minute read book, it'd be good news, bad news, and good news. The good news is they're God's people. It means there's a covenant-keeping God who knows them, who has a relationship with them. Uh, refer back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the way up to where we're at right now in the story. That's the good news. Um, and so Joel is familiar with the history and story of God's people. And you say, is he really? How do you know that? Well, he quotes Old Testament books. He's using promises from these Old Testament books, like Isaiah, Zephaniah, Amos, Nahum, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and even Exodus. He is deeply embedded into the scriptures. He knows the story of Israel. He knows about this relationship with God. And so this bad news and good news, it's just that the gospel puts before us, the same gospel that Jesus would come preaching, puts before us the bad news of sin. It's the bad news of sin. And note that sin isn't just a product of our environment, like, oh, they made me this way, or oh, because I live here, it's just my culture. Sin is not just uh, the product of our environment, but it's the state of my heart. It's what the Bible is presenting to us. Um, Your heart is where sin is. And so I can run from a relationship that I feel like is toxic. I can run from a city that I feel like is influencing me but I can't run from myself. We can't run from ourselves, can we? And so accepting bad news only um, isn't what the gospel is asking us to do, nor accepting just good news about God's mercy and compassion. Uh, Doing just either of those don't really help us. Drop either one and, and you either have no hope or false hope. No hope or false hope. And so there's good news about God's rescuing grace that's going to come back into this bad news. Well, let me just ask, at this point in our narrative summary, let me ask a theological question, and it has to do with the day of the Lord. We just explained what the day of the Lord is. Maybe you grew up in a church, or you may be listening to this right now, having unspeakable fear, fear about the day of the Lord. Um, Maybe you've watched some movie or read some book that's influenced how you think about yourself regarding the day of the Lord. And so, again, I want to say that the day of the Lord is a time. It can be past, it can be present, it can be future, when the presence of the Lord does indeed bring judgment and or blessing. And deliverance, depending on the circumstances. And in history, Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-human, the God-man, takes upon himself this plague of judgment 
for our sin. And so, for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, end judgment time has already been carried out on Christ at the cross. Let's repeat that. If you're a Christian, if you're following Christ, he's Lord, he's Savior, he's King in your life, the end times, uh, the end judgment is something that you and I don't dread and we don't fear. How could you say such an arrogant thing? (laughs) It's not arrogant, it's faith in Christ. Christ took upon himself that plague, that judgment, so that you and I, dear follower of Christ, never have to. It's been handled, it's been done. So there, not at the end of history, but right there in the middle of history, Christ on the cross, that uh, end day of the Lord has been taken care of. You may ask, well, where do you find that in Scripture? Well, I'm going to use 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So it's Christ's righteousness that's being produced for you and given to you, and he's making payment. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 24, this is Peter um, preaching, saying, He himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. Amen. I mean, the day of the Lord, yes, it's real. And there are specific context matters which we're trying to deal with here in the book of Joel. But for the believer the, the Christian, uh, it's been handled. It's been taken care of through Christ. Okay, a sample passage. A sample passage that I've chosen is chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 32. It's probably about a one or two minute read here. Now again, image here in the uh, beginning of the book, Joel's book here, he's beginning with a picture of people about to experience new wine. That's a great picture. If you've ever tasted wine, or maybe you've been to a winery, um, they've probably taught you how you're to experience a glass of wine, right? There's the, 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 the swirling it, and it's supposed to oxygenate it, and you're supposed to sniff it, and you go back to swirling it again, and finally... Right as you're uh, putting it up to your mouth, imagine it's snatched away from you. (laughs) What? That's not the kind of winery I want to go to. Um, This is exactly what's happening to their future. This this is what's being pictured through Joel. His wine's being talked about there at the very beginning. And so uh, I want to talk about two points today. One is repentance and restoration that we're going to see in this text for us. All right, I invite you to follow along as as we read. It's about a one to two minute read here. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy feast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn of the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors, whom the Lord calls. Okay, that's the end of our, our reading. And uh, again, that's just a hyperlink. I'm just throwing out a little hyperlink there, a little, a little sample, a little reading of here what's in the book of Joel. Well, let's uh, look at these two themes that I'm uh, noticing here in our text. The first one is this theme of repentance. And, I, and in this um, text here, Joel is going to tell us how to repent. And he's also going to tell us why to repent. Verse 12, I hope you're looking at it with me. Verse 12, God is speaking to that original audience and God is speaking to you, listener. 
through the prophet Joel, return to me. That's God speaking. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Oh, Joel gives us more detail on how to do this repenting. How to do it. What does it even mean? Verse 13 says, rend your heart. Rend your heart and not just your garments. Return to the Lord. What in the world does it mean to rend something? Rent? Is that what? No, I'm talking about renting something. Rend your hearts. It means to tear something. It means to be ripped in two. Now, the reason why he's saying this is because for those people, at least in that context, a show, an outward show, as they express grief, whether it would be at a memorial service or uh, even about their own sin, uh, that had damaged their relationship with God, there was a ripping of clothes. There was a tearing. There was a rending of clothes. Joel is saying, don't do that on the outside. That's not what repentance is. Don't fake the Lord or try to impress the Lord with you know, what you're trying to do to show repentance uh, in that way. See, Joel knows that repentance can be just a show to get out of trouble. The New Testament talks about that and talks about repentance. I think it's in the book of 2 Corinthians where it talks about uh, worldly sorrow only leads to death and destruction. There's no true turning away from sin. Godly repentance, that verse says, leads to life, abundant life, that is. So God is not interested in that type of relationship. He wants genuine change. And again, this is not a message of go clean yourself up Go have a good week because you're going to try really hard. It's to say, I need to repent. I need to return to the Lord. So rend means to tear. It means to lament. Who? who, Who's supposed to do this? Why is this even so important? And Joel answers that too, verse 16. Gather gather the people. Gather the people. uh, And that means get the elders. Have them come. Get the children. What about those breastfeeding? Yeah, bring those too. And then listen to this part. Even go get the bridegroom and the groom out of their room. <laughs> go get them. Verse 17 says, Weep and say, Spare your people, Lord. Don't let the unbelievers who are not a part of your family, O Lord, say, Where is their God? Mocking you, Lord. Don't let that happen. Joel, Joel gives, me, gives us something here really profound, I believe, and that is the why behind repentance. Why? I don't know about you, but I, I'm so motivated by why. Why do we do certain things? And he tells us in verse 13, he says, God, God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. God is full of love. And God's going to relent from sending calamity. That's the true motivator in repentance. It's God's love. It's not some fear of God that God's going to smite me with some stick if I get out of line or do the wrong thing. It's God's love that leads to repentance. And by the way, Joel there is quoting from that Exodus passage. Joel was familiar with the golden calf incident. The golden calf incident. He's familiar. And he learned from that golden calf story that God's mercy and love is more powerful 
than God's judgment and God's wrath. That's not what motivates us as a human race. It's God's love and mercy that leads to repentance. So, so why rend your hearts? Why tear those hearts? It's because God's heart was torn. God's heart is constantly torn in a way when we, when we rebel against God or go our own way. And ultimately, that time in history where his heart, uh, God's heart is torn most prominently is Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross On the cross there, God's heart is torn. Gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they they recorded as such that Jesus, when he breathed his last on the cross and there was this darkness over the entire earth and an earthquake struck and then Jesus finally cried out. Do you remember what it says right there? It says that the curtain, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, symbolizing God's own heart. I mean, that, that, that curtain symbolized some, some barrier between our relationship with God and only priests could go in there once a year and represent us to meet with God and have intimate relationship with God. And so on the cross, when Christ is crucified, that very veil is torn. Scholars mentioned that that veil, that curtain was maybe six inches thick. Imagine the sound of that thing. Imagine hearing that thing rip. And again, we notice in these gospel writers, the beauty of even the the detail is that it ripped from top to bottom. Huge theological implication right there. It's not man and humanity's attempt to somehow, hey, you get on that side, I'm on this side, we're going to yank it as hard as we can. It's not going from bottom up. It's going top down. God is the one rending his own heart. Tearing his own heart. Joel is leading the priest and the people in repentance and prayer. And he says in verse 14, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. God is basically saying, you repent. You repent and I'm going to repent too. And I hope you're listening right there because you probably just thought, wait a minute, God doesn't need to repent. God, wait a minute, you just said God might repent. And you're right. Thanks for listening. God does not need to repent. That is, turn away from sin. The relenting that's being talked about here is that God might turn from his judgment and turn and face us in mercy and in compassion. This should make you weep. This should make you fall to your knees in humble uh, receiving of this grace. So a God who relents, moves towards us in in mercy so that we can turn to God in that same way and love this God who loves us in that way. And may that repentance be ongoing. I mean, as you look at this in the uh, both Old and New Testament, it it is the the grammar of that word that's being used is an active indicative, meaning it's perpetual. It doesn't mean, hey, go repent one time. And once you've done that one, you're good. No, it means that mind your heart means a constant tearing, a constant rending, so that God can have us return to him. This second theme here of restoration that comes out in this text, verse 18, 
It says, then the Lord, what a huge transition going on in this passage. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Sounds a lot like Jesus in the New Testament. We're describing Jesus as he walked through all the cities, as he was teaching in the cities and in the synagogues. He looked upon the people with compassion because they slash we slash you are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 23 and 24, God is faithful, he says, to bring about this restoration, both an upcoming restoration for them uh, as well as a future restoration that's coming. Look at verse 25, and this week in reading this uh, book uh, a few times over, I kept being struck by verse 25 where God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. I want you right now to think about suffering in your own life. I want you to think about loss in your own life. I want you to think, think about the destructive chaos that sin has caused in your life and in our state, city, world, throughout all of history. And what God is beginning to do is, is throw this little seed out there in front of Joel to encourage his people that God says, I'm going to repay you for all those years. All of that pain, all of that apparent nothingness, where does it all go? God has an answer for it. It's a promise. Verse 26 and 27, you will praise the name of, like, like me doing that, you're going to praise me, God says. You will praise the name of the Lord who has worked wonders for you. Then you will know that I am in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Verse 28. I will pour out my spirit on all people. By the way, Jesus refers to Joel chapter 2 verse 28 that we just said. I will pour out my spirit on all people. You go and look at Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, once when Jesus is eating with his disciples, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was already telling those disciples, it's coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to live. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to go back to be with the Father, but I don't leave you all as orphans. The Holy Spirit is coming. His very presence is coming. Peter references Joel chapter 2, verse 28, as Peter is preaching there in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 reads, Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd as he preached, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, pointing to those believers and followers of Christ. They're not drunk. They're acting in such a way that make you think that they're drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was prophesied long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see Visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. 
there's hope. There's hope here. Hope of restoration. And part of that restoration that's being promised is God's very presence who indwells you as a believer. Make no mistake about it, as Peter says. Never minimize that. Spirit's presence, God's very presence in you to be restoring you right now. That is what's happening. Um, We're quite a fixer-upper project. Quite a restoration project going on as God begins to take up residency inside of us. Verse 32 is... We're looking at our text here about restoration. It says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Those whom the Lord calls. There's a restoration of humanity that's going on as people are being called into a right and true relationship. Human flourishing, one might call it. Human flourishing begins to happen when there's been repentance. And God, through His Spirit, is at work Restoring you and me. The book ends with a new vision of wine. We talked about how it started and now it's going to end with wine dripping from the mountains. If you've read this before, of course you did. It's in Amos. It even shows up in the New Testament. And there's a river here in the last part of Joel. There's a river that bursts forth from the Lord's temple, watering an arid valley. And he says, I am the Lord and I will make my home with my people. What's the big deal? The big deal is a new Eden. A new Eden. All of creation is going to be restored. A new Eden where God's presence is in Jerusalem and it begins to flow out like a river and it brings renewal everywhere. Even to those places where we thought it's impossible. There's no growth there. Joel chapter 1. If you go back and read this book, which I hope you do. Chapter 1, verse 20 says, Even the wild animals cry out to you, O God, because the streams have dried up and the fire has consumed the wilderness pastures. Creation itself is crying out to you, O God. They know that something ain't right. Something went awry because of sin entering in our world. And then as we know in the New Testament, and we'll close here, Romans chapter 8 talks more about this new creation that started within you. It's also fulfilled where it says the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And so our prayer, that's told us in the New Testament and has been uttered throughout church history, is come, Lord Jesus. Come, reign within me. Lead me to repentance. Not just an outward show of it. But lead me in repentance. And be about restoring me by your own presence in me. And in you. And then give us hope. This place is not our home. Our temporary residence. And yet God is the one who will return here to this place. Bringing not only great new wine. But restoring all of creation. Why don't we pray? Dear Lord, we 
We thank you. It is only by your kindness and only by your compassion that leads us to repentance. It's not about us making ourselves feel guilty or or, or some preacher making us feel guilty or having a wrong view of you that that, that the someday of the Lord is, is what we're supposed to be trying to have a good life now because we're fearful of that. God, it's about your mercy. Your kindness is what leads us to repentance. And we do pray that you would help us repent, tear our hearts in grief over our sins, sins of greed, sins of racism, sins of nationalism, classism, jealousy, lust, or just simply indifference, thinking none of it even relates to me. And we also join the global church in praying, come Lord Jesus, to bring the restoration of all things that you've promised. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.